Malibu, June 2019. At a little private enclave named Paradise Cove, a breeze blew back the wispy hair on models as they walked Oceanside. It was an intimate affair. The who's who of fashion had driven up from Los Angeles or flown in from New York to get a glimpse of Yves Saint Laurent's upcoming collection. And it was a celebrity affair, no less. Even Keanu Reeves made a cameo walking for the French fashion house. Opting for the cooler-than-thou backdrop of the beach was a clear departure from the cookie-cutter runway shows back east. The label's menwear for spring-summer 2020 wanted to make its mark the coastal casual way. Little did the models walking that evening know that they were on borrowed time. Literally. In the weeks before the show, Saint Laurent had applied for an event permit with the city of Malibu, but it had been denied. Local officials didn't want the show happening on Paradise Cove's delicate ecosystem. All sorts of beach wildlife could be damaged. And yet, the show went on thanks to a loophole. The event's organizers secured a filming permit instead. And all the local officials' worst fears came true. The runway show boldly disregarded the best practices credo, leave it better than you found it. Allegedly, detritus from plastic water bottles to event supplies was found littered across the beach post-show. Fashion Week had always been about making a splash and pushing boundaries. And while the YSL show certainly checked those boxes, the brand's arrogant evasion of Malibu's regulations cast a decidedly gauche look over the whole concept. Afterwards, even the most loyal sartorialists wondered if this was the only way to make Fashion Week bigger and better. Had the tradition turned toxic? This is The Dark Side Of, a Spotify original from Parcast, a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other originals for free on Spotify. This season, we've dug into various pockets of the fashion industry, from its troubled origins all the way through the never-ending churn of fast fashion. We've learned how even the genuine desire for self-expression can grow muddled in the race to acquire more and more pieces produced in precarious and unethical ways. Today, we're ending our season at the pinnacle of high fashion's biannual calendar, Fashion Week. New York Fashion Week, as we know it, has been an institution since the early 1990s. It's nuzzled its way into the nooks and crannies of pop culture, from the plot lines of shows like Sex and the City and Gossip Girl to the front pages of the New York Times style section. The emphasis on the event has many looking to Manhattan twice a year as a sort of crystal ball for what will be trending in the months ahead. But the greater fashion industry is out of sync. It's simultaneously trying to speed up and slow down. 
Fast fashion is butting heads with calls for slower consumption, which leaves the impossibly short display of showmanship that the industry hinges upon, Fashion Week, hanging in the balance. As each Fashion Week racks up a queasy price tag to produce, one shouldered unevenly by corporate sponsors and overworked, hustling fashionistas, one inescapable question remains. Why is anyone still clamoring for a front row seat to the shows? Coming up, we'll dig into the tornado that is Fashion Week. Stay with us. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. For some, fashion is a chameleon. The beauty of the medium is that it's constantly in flux. You can be whoever you want, whenever you want, all by virtue of what you step into. As we've learned throughout this season, fashion offers its devotees many things. Amongst them, armor, freedom, and a mouthpiece. You can express yourself loudly without ever saying a word. But the nature of something so ephemeral means it also falls victim to the very thing that makes it special. Fashion is always just one inch away from being outdated, or at the very least, Passé. The high turnover industry is an endless revolving door of keeping up with the Joneses. Some coats and cuts may stand the test of time, but nothing demonstrates that ultimately the here and now is all that matters better than New York Fashion Week. But what exactly is this week-long bonanza of luxury? Designers put out presentations of theatrical excess, competing for the attention of editors, buyers, stylists, and social climbers. In recent years, the playing field has only heated up. It's now the norm for A-list celebrities to debut their own lines alongside established labels and tiny indie boutiques. Think of Rihanna's Fenty line or the Olsen twins' label, The Row. Not to mention, there's always the added layer of the new fame generation, which has risen to notoriety thanks to social media and blogging. 
Hundreds of influencers and socialites with tickets to the shows now mean many New York runway venues are nearly bursting at the gills. It would appear then that all those in attendance are ready for the experience of a lifetime. Something truly remarkable. Clearly one worth planning one's biannual calendar year around. However, that's not quite the case. At least anymore. As Vox explained, Fashion Week's identity and purpose have fractured into many things, and none of them are very savory. In 2019, Rebecca Jennings wrote, Depending on whom you ask, it's turned into a bloated and outdated trade show for an industry that has evolved beyond it, or a parade of influencer narcissism, or an over-commercialized slog where nobody has any original ideas anymore. For a showcase that directly ties into the careers of thousands of designers, stylists, makeup artists, and set designers, this is a depressing tagline at the very least. Fashion Week certainly wasn't always this bloated mess. Odd as it may seem, unofficially the first Fashion Week was held in the midst of wartime. World War II, no less. Unconventional as it was, the timing proved to be kismet. Before the war, American stylists and trendsetters had always looked across the Atlantic, to Paris specifically, for the hottest new styles and trends. With the war preventing travel abroad, however, the timing served as incentive to create a very specific Americanized version of a fashion showcase. American designers were given the spotlight and they rose to the occasion, delivering smart, contemporary styles. All eyes shifted to New York in 1943, where this press week was held. It was a practical affair more than anything, to aggregate all the shows into one week held at a select few locations took immense burden off buyers and editors. They didn't have to scurry all over the city and gamble on which collections they could afford to hit or miss. It gave a sense of order to the calendar year of fashion, especially during the heyday of department stores, when upscale retailers like Bloomingdale's or Saks Fifth Avenue knew that wool peacoats would be trending soon, they could place their orders feeling confident. They knew that once eager shoppers saw reports of what was in vogue and came knocking, their racks would be furnished and ready. Designers, too, left the week feeling like they had done their part to further their personal brands and get the word out. For an industry largely made behind closed doors and hunched shoulders, it was a well-deserved opportunity to peacock before their peers. Officially, though, 1993 was the birth of New York Fashion Week under one centralized brand, NYFW for short. Sleek, chic, and united, the shows were all aggregated into one venue lofty tents in Midtown Manhattan's Bryant Park. Again, location, location, location. Bryant Park was especially alluring since it consolidated many of the production costs that fashion labels themselves have to front. With shared runways came an influx of free resources, like lighting, seating, and audience coordination. It seemed Gotham had found its place to strut, all without turning out the pockets of the designers who wanted to show their collections. 
the Golden Goose wouldn't last. After venue disputes with both Bryant Park and later Lincoln Center, the organizers of NYFW were forced to disperse the shows. After 2015, the week settled into its current iteration, in non-pandemic times, of course. The shows have a venue in Midtown, but many designers now opt for more specialized locales. Which has made it more divided than ever. Not only are the shows once again scattered far and wide across Manhattan and Brooklyn, it's far more difficult to ignore the hierarchy at play. There are those who attend, those who produce, and those who perform. What New York Fashion Week holds for a model compared to a production coordinator compared to a boutique intern are decidedly different experiences. For the upper echelons and well-connected, the week might be a blissful, fun run of champagne, haute couture, and rooftop after-parties. For the majority working the week, though, it's an absolutely grueling marathon. After months of preparations, it's the last burst of chaos before they have to turn back to the next season and start planning once more. Take one story from fashion editor Eric Wilson, for instance. In his 2015 column for the New York Times, he wryly joked that between shows, an editor once caught me eating a dusty lozenge discovered on the bottom of a colleague's handbag. He was making a light joke, but also darkly underscoring the root of his entire article. Fashion Week is a scheduling nightmare. Writers and journalists covering shows zigzag across the city multiple times a day, rarely stopping for anything but the bare necessities. Food is mostly an afterthought. Wilson wrote an entire piece outlining his week of 14-hour days spent scuttling through bloated Manhattan traffic. When it was all done, Fashion Week left him five pounds lighter completely unintentionally. Using a Nike fuel band, he tracked that he walked over 60 miles that week, just in commuting to and from shows. And make no mistake, Wilson was fueling up. He pointed out that this was a week of subsisting on bagels, roast beef sandwiches, ice cream, breakfast pizza, and lobster spaghetti. Despite all this, it was all he could do to stay upright and focused. Granted, he was averaging over seven miles a day on foot. But that's just another daily trade-off the week crystallizes. To use more economical and environmentally conscious methods of navigating Fashion Week, walking and public transit is anything but luxurious. There is no respite for those who hustle. Other media mavens face the same breakneck pacing during the week. Take former Repeller editor Amelia Diamond, who chronicled a day in her life of fall NYFW 2018. Diamond reported she was awake by 6 a.m. to get working on story edits by 7. After a few hours online, by 10.45 a.m., she was en route to a Ralph Lauren runway show. By 12.30, two hours later, she was on to Derek Lamb. When 2 p.m. hit, she popped out to wrangle conference calls for work before heading right to her next show, Philip Lim, at 3 p.m. Then, Diamond was downtown for an Oscar de la Renta show by 4 p.m. After a slice of cold pizza at home, Diamond fired off more emails from 5 to 8 p.m. 
There's always one last show, though, which meant heading uptown to the Museum of Modern Art for designer Carolina Herrera. When Diamond finally returned home after 9 p.m., she indicated that she kept on email until after 10, then set her alarm for 6.30 the next day. She'd need a good wake-up call to do it all again. If five shows stretched across the city a day sounds dizzying, you can understand why Eric Wilson was literally shedding weight. Unfortunately, the work routine of journalists and writers seemed downright palatial in comparison to other groups working the week. In truth, a lion's share of labor in the fashion industry falls on the shoulders of interns. Coming up, fashion interns go unpaid, and we dig into the cold, hard costs of putting on a runway show. Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now, we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous. Or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye. Or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain, you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. Now, back to the story. For a select few, New York Fashion Week is a biannual invitation to wear as many items in one's closet as possible. The flagrant opportunity to peacock for peers comes second only to rubbing elbows with the who's who of the fashion industry. Sneaking a peek into what lies ahead for the sartorial zeitgeist, the runway shows themselves is almost just an added perk. But interns are rarely included in those living a charmed life during Fashion Week. Let's consider the similarities of one BCBG intern's day at Fashion Week to those of the journalists and editors we've touched on. In 2017, one intern told InStyle magazine about just what type of schedule she kept. She'd been working until 11 p.m. the night before, preparing favors for show guests. There was no rest for the wicked. Granted, she then had to wake up at 4.50 a.m. the next day to make it to the label's venue for check-in by 6 a.m. sharp. Then, after a full day of shows and running around escorting guests to their seats in the venue, her official responsibilities began to wind down around 5 p.m. Still, she wasn't in the clear until she'd tumbled through the door at home around 9 p.m., a 16-hour day, give or take. Now, all of this might sound worth it for the exhilaration. The potential career opportunities, too. 
Coveted positions in the industry can be made or missed on word of mouth. They seem worth the sacrifice of a couple of days or even a week of chaos. But what if all the hustle and hard work is unpaid? For many interns, the grueling push to support their stylists, editors, or labels during Fashion Week is one that falls within an already complicated state of employment. The fashion industry has gained a reputation for taking advantage of the under or sometimes unpaid labor of interns. These young workers, often in or fresh out of college, trade horror stories over how they've been compensated not with wages, but with food, clothing, or other perks. On top of that, many of these college-aged interns make immense sacrifices to hold any position remotely near Fashion Week. While some of them live in New York, perhaps attending design schools like Parsons or Pratt, others commute into the city solely for the opportunity to say they worked the hallowed week. But therein lies one more subtle barrier of entry. Another fashion intern told lifestyle site Refinery29 that there were days she didn't even go into her internship because she couldn't afford the cost of public transit. Despite working another retail job on the weekends to make up wages, ends were still too tight. She made excuses or called in sick. Though many interns now working at Fashion Week are paid, how much they're compensated remains in the hands of each employer. Interns working for the event itself can earn a vastly different wage from interns working for a specific stylist, boutique, or PR firm. All of this falls under the umbrella of New York State's labor laws, which can be unclear when it comes to fashion. As an industry that relies increasingly on independent contractors and non-traditional salaried roles, loopholes are plentiful. As of 2020, the consensus remains that interns can remain exempt from the state's Minimum Wage Act in orders if they meet certain criteria. It's often lucrative, then, for employers to bend the rules as far as they can to make sure their interns remain exempt, therefore reaping the most labor for the fewest dollars. If fashion interns are lucky enough to be in paid positions, by a generous estimate, they're likely making somewhere around New York City's minimum wage, $15 an hour. A 2016 Money.com report averaged that liberal arts majors might make something between $15 to $17 an hour while interning. Keep in mind, though, this is all before taxes. And rarely are interns on a standard 40-hour-a-week guarantee like many full-time employees. Even more, their short-term employment status almost guarantees they don't qualify for health insurance or retirement benefits, which can make even the smaller costs that inevitably go hand-in-hand with the job feel daunting. Interns frequently pay for all transportation, food, and miscellaneous expenses out of pocket. Should they be in a position to have to pay for other line items, sadly, the methodology is usually to cross their fingers and hope to be paid back. As the same intern who struggled to pay for her transit costs told Refinery29, she waited nearly two weeks to be reimbursed for a purchase made for a photo shoot. 
She had to politely prod her employer to be paid back. When it finally did happen, it came without any explanation for the delay, let alone an apology. Unfortunately, the next step up from intern on the fashion food chain doesn't always mean an end to the hellish pay or hours. Assistants don't fare all that much better. One former stylist assistant told Vice News that this job is an addictive nightmare. My relationship with my boss can largely be likened to Stockholm Syndrome. She continued on, remembering the only way she survived Paris Fashion Week was by currying favor with her boss's chauffeur. She was grateful to her unlikely ally, remembering how the driver even brought her food, since, as she said, it's easy to starve yourself during Fashion Week as you don't ever get one free moment. Surely, though, interns and assistants aside, the models, at least, the faces of the show, are getting enough rest and compensated adequately. One would think. In light of our earlier episode on modeling, the answer is a resounding no. In comparison to back-of-house positions, Business Insider reported that the average runway model at New York Fashion Week is earning $48,130 on average, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's only a third of the average annual Manhattanite salary of $144,716. In comparison, the security guards tasked with keeping an eye on everyone backstage are making around $38,000 annually. These wages are certainly meager in comparison to those working elbow-to-elbow with them. The top backstage earners are fashion designers, likely clocking in at a cool $93,000 salary, PR managers, just a hair behind the average at $92,000, and buyers, who are often taking home at least $80,000 annually. The hierarchy, however veiled beneath layers of foundation and hairspray, remains undeniable when the numbers are crunched. But the earnings of Fashion Week's bigwigs are simply drops in the bucket compared to the spending required to put on such an exhibition. In reality, hundreds of thousands of dollars evaporate in a matter of minutes. 17 minutes, more precisely, which is how long each runway show lasts on average, according to research by DHL. According to a 2019 report from Vogue, to put up a show at NYFW might run you anywhere from $125,000 to upwards of $300,000. No matter how jaw-dropping that bill may seem, keep in mind that's only the base cost of production. Like how much you might pay for airfare and lodging on a trip. It's not factoring in all the add-ons. Which are plentiful. This is a week of luxury, let's not forget. In addition to that average price of production, designers and producers then have to account for the costs of manufacturing the clothing collections themselves. And lest we forget, the cost of an oh-so-perfect venue will also come into play. In the perpetual race for their 15 minutes of fame during the week, designers wanting to truly set their collections apart from their peers usually opt to splurge on specialty locations. 
To show somewhere extra special like the Museum of Modern Art or the Hammerstein Ballroom? Prepare to shell out more. Closing down venues that are open to the public comes at a pretty penny. In 2019, designer Christian Siriano went so far as to break down the cost of his runway show that fall. To underscore the magnitude of some of the price tags, here's a comparison. Siriano estimated that forty dollars to $60,000 was spent solely on runway models. As of 2019, roughly the same amount of money, $59,000, covered tuition and fees for one year of Ivy League education at Columbia University. Lighting is another pricey line item. Should a designer choose to show at an off-the-beaten-path venue, like luxury label Takoon did with an outdoor Brooklyn show in 2016, additional equipment is needed. Not to mention, Takoon outdid itself in terms of embellishments in order to make sure guests actually made the trip to Brooklyn. According to Vogue, the invitation to the show itself was a kitschy Walkman and cassette tape. The label's tongue-in-cheek nod to the rapidly cannibalizing cycle of technology. According to Siriano, though, lighting costs can max out somewhere around $40,000 per runway show. That's roughly the cost of a new luxury sedan or the average yearly salary of a high school teacher in Pennsylvania. To be clear, it's not only the haute couture houses catering to the 1% that front these egregious bills. Increasingly, brands that identify as direct-to-consumer, meaning they exist only through e-commerce, want to make a mark via their shows, too. Take the label Discount Universe, which screams Millennial and Gen Z, with dollar signs replacing the S letters in its name. Though its show was intended to simply ramp up buzz, the brand still dropped a lump sum of $155,500 to produce a runway show in fall of 2018. Plus, it spent another $150,000 to produce the clothing samples, so really, $305,500. Put another way, Discount Universe paid the same price as a two-bedroom, two-bath house on the edge of Palm Springs, California, or a four-bedroom, three-bath home with 14 acres in Twin Lake, Michigan. Money disappears in minutes when it comes to runway shows. And unfortunately, the wastefulness begins long before guests even set foot into the venue. The cost of traveling to, around, and from Fashion Week is unlike anything else. Carbon costs and the feudal future of Fashion Week are up next. Now, back to the story. Fashion has long prided itself on carving the unique out of the mundane. For industry veterans and rookies alike, the clothes, these beautiful ends of expression, are worth the means, no matter how imprudent. But a growing population has rejected this luxury-at-all-costs mentality when it comes to Fashion Week. In February of 2020, the New York Times addressed the elephant in the dressing room. One article pointed out that 
It is true that the only genuinely sustainable fashion week is no fashion week at all. The article acknowledged that designers have legitimate reason to be hesitant, if not terrified, to abandon Fashion Week. It's become a tentpole of the sartorial year. But the undeniable cost of the biannual event is more than just numbers on a budget sheet. Fashion Week, much like the industry as a whole, is an emissions malefactor. Collectively, little has been done to mitigate the damage. In 2019, some designers touted carbon-neutral shows, meaning they pledged to offset their carbon emissions. But this was still a small fraction of those showing collections that week. The New York Times wasn't so quick to offer absolution to those willing to try carbon-neutral either. It pointed out the irony of touting a sustainable runway show, given the circumstances it plays into. To merely attend the ready-to-wear collections, tens of thousands of professionals fly to four separate countries in a single month. We don't have to look far to get a sense of how much carbon is unloaded each year at Fashion Week. One comprehensive study done by the group Zero to Market metered out what buyers and brands expend. And it's startling. 241,000 tons of CO2 the emissions of a small country. As the researchers then underscored, that's enough to power New York's own Times Square for more than half a century. Everything from the chauffeured cars to couriers to move the clothes themselves to lodging all the in-town guests factor into that number. But the lion's share of these carbon emissions comes from international travel especially when it comes to New York Fashion Week. The Big Apple holds the crown for the most egregious carbon footprint. With every stylist, designer, and influencer descending upon the city, NYFW gobbles up 37% of the total yearly emissions that the Zero to Market report tracked. For anyone quick to say that's romantic hyperbole, the New York Times had information to prove otherwise. In comparison to London, Paris, and Milan, the number of attendees coming to the city blows the others out of the water. In 2014, New York had 110,000 attendees, in comparison to London's 5,000 and Milan's 10,000. Considering the environmental price tag that each New York Fashion Week racks up, the actual price tags of the shows we've discussed may even seem like a bargain. But anxiety still runs rife below the glossy facade, even with those the week is meant to celebrate. The undeniable warning signs of the week's expiration have been flashing in the rear view for more than a few designers. Excitement for the showmanship of live runway shows has been quietly burning down in the last decade especially as the event itself struggles to maintain a cohesive tone, location, and ideology. This lack of zeal, more than anything, is one that's hard to escape. It affects everyone in attendance. Journalists, editors, and even the designers themselves have ventured that Fashion Week just doesn't have the impact that it used to. That same New York Times style reporter, Eric Wilson, mused that Fashion Week, as New York knows it, 
may have already been entering its twilight phase as far back as 2013. In fact, that year he wrote about how Fashion Month was simply cannibalizing itself with its unchecked sprawl. He wondered if all the, quote, thousands of writers, retailers, photographers, videographers, bloggers, and hordes of indeterminate somebodies who for various reasons really must be there for the week actually had to be there. For an industry that's become skilled in selling amenities as necessities, he'd hit a very murky question. The debate over Fashion Week's significance isn't unlike what retail calls the Christmas creep, that period of time when brands start to sneak their merchandise into stores earlier and earlier each season. Publicly, we lament that it's absurd to see Christmas decorations come November 1st, but it still happens every year. We don't break the cycle, we just complain. The same might be said for Fashion Week. As Eric Wilson pointed out, 12 years before his 2013 article ran, a very similar headline graced the front page of the New York Times. It proclaimed there were too many shows and the whole bonanza was irrelevant. Which returns us to the root of what Fashion Week is intended to be, a marketplace for buyers and sellers. Many are clinging to the week in its current iteration because in some respects, it's still a cash cow. According to the New York City Economic Development Corporation, as of 2012, Fashion Week generated $532 million in direct visitor spending per year. That same year, NYFW raked in $865 million. And year over year, it appears the total impact on New York City's economy continues to grow. By 2017, Fashion United calculated that New York Fashion Week generated the highest income from all the global fashion weeks, leaving Milan, London, and Paris in the dust. By that year, the group estimated that New York was bringing in closer to $900 million, a sum still greater than leading events such as the U.S. Open and the New York City Marathon. Fashion Week, despite its nicheness, is similar to hosting the Olympics, a brief and potent supercharge to the economy. But it's important not to ignore the deeper sentiments at play. To stop Fashion Week goes beyond pure finances. A piece by Bloomberg titled The Death of Clothing shed light on why abandoning Fashion Week is less about the clothes themselves and more about the framework of behaviors surrounding them. The article found that in 2018, an average American's annual spend on apparel had been, quote, displaced by travel, eating out, and activities, what's routinely lumped together as experiences. Fashion Week, too, is an experience, which is what makes its current position nearly impossible to reconcile. At its core is a dying market. Consumers are less interested in being told what they should and shouldn't wear. But at the same time, they still want an arena to display their individuality and style. In an industry so tailored to vanity, never discount the power of peacocking and the desire to cling to it. 
As Gucci's Alessandro Michela told the New York Times, for him, above all else, Fashion Week is sacred. We all come for this ritual that is almost religious. In our world, it is very important, and I really want to go on repeating this ritual. Journalist Madeline Ziegler aptly bottled this belief, too. She remarked that the sheer spectacle of the week keeps devotees hanging on, saying, Fashion shows were designed for people to see the clothes moving, see the fairy tale that brings on the story designed by the brand. And Vanessa Friedman, fashion director and chief fashion critic for The New York Times, gave one final thought on the fading push to keep the shows going. They exist to, quote, communicate a sense of the hands that have touched a garment, the imagination that has created it, the effort that has gone into it. In a June 2020 piece titled, This is Not the End of Fashion, she wrote that she believes from now on, it's the fashion industry's responsibility to stake its position on what Fashion Week will become. The creaky circus of fashion, as she put it, needs momentous change to stay alive. However that adaptation manifests, quote, is going to be how history remembers whatever happens next. The week will need to reinvent itself not only in terms of sustainability, but to once again prove its ability to keep a spirit of innovation and style alive. It will need to embrace change unlike ever before. According to Friedman, whatever change this is, it will have to communicate one clear message to both fashion insiders and casual sartorialists that, quote, yes, I have changed. Yes, things are different. Now we emerge in a new world. Will it come? We'll have to wait and see. Thanks for listening to our season on the dark side of fashion. We'll be back next week as we change gears with the fall season into a special trio of episodes. Horror has long been the medium for the mischievous, the curious, and the troubled. Join us as we venture into the dark side of topics like haunted houses, cult classic movie The Exorcist, and master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hang a horseshoe above your door. 
keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions.